and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and in 2011, Padre Gautuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website 10by9.com. We'll be staying on Zoom until it's safe to return to our home venue here in Belfast, but we're also keen to keep in touch with our new audiences across Ireland, Britain and further afield, so we'll keep you posted on any developments. All three stories in this podcast were told at our wonderful Christmas evening on Wednesday, December the 16th. All the stories had a festive theme, so enjoy. First up, from her home in New York, was first-timer Kathleen Harris. Watch out for a little F-bomb or two, used brilliantly. Every child is supposed to love Santa. In fact, it seems every child is contractually obligated to love Santa. But here's the thing. While every child claims to be fond of the fat man, in reality, not many actually are. They love the idea of him, of course, the twinkle of tinsel and the promise of presents, as well as the fact that the dude can tap his nose and get phenomenal gas mileage solely on the horsepower of eight tiny reindeer. But I honestly wasn't a fan of the guy, and I didn't know any kids who readily queued up to sit on his lap without some sort of bribery or enforcement by their parents. Something was off about the guy. I didn't trust him. So in 1977, when my grandmother brought my cousin Tommy and me to the Abraham and Strauss department store in downtown Brooklyn to visit none other than the fat man himself, Santa, I plainly, abjectly panicked. My cousin Tommy was five. He hadn't reached the age of reason yet, so he happily prattled on in the back seat of the car about Dr. Zaius and Cornelius and all the other Planet of the Apes action figures he was going to ask Santa for. I, however, felt my seven-year-old pulse throbbing at the side of my neck because I was in Catholic school and preparing to make my first communion the following spring because I was learning about original sin and penance and the intolerable shame of humanness and because all of my terrible misdeeds were about to be found out. Look, I could certainly ask Santa for an easy bake oven and a Barbie dream house, just like the next kid, but why go through the tiresome exercise? The fat guy already knew that I'd erred far more on the side of naughty than nice. He apparently knew each and every one of my petty crimes, that I regularly stuck my tongue out behind my mother's back, that I swiped a Mary Jane from the penny candy bin at the corner store, that I whispered swear words like string of prayers, shit, fuck, damn, shit, fuck, damn, under the covers at night. Sandy had some sort of godlike omniscience thing going on, as well as the infamous naughty and nice list, which he had obviously annotated for easy reference. He knew everything, that red velveteen weirdo, and I didn't stand a chance. Besides, it was the 70s, and I was from Queens, We didn't have fireplaces in our houses. We had bars on our windows and switchblades hidden in our earth shoes. If Santa could get into my house in the middle of the night to deliver presents without the use of a chimney, then clearly he was a burglar who had done hard time and he was someone to be feared. 
Eventually, we arrived at the department store and rode the elevator to the top floor. My cousin stood beside me, blissfully sucking on a candy cane and adding to his list, which now included Hot Wheels, a light bright, and the pièce de résistance, the highly coveted green machine, the low-slung mag wheel stick shift ride of choice amongst the primary grade set. What a putz, I thought. Jesus himself wouldn't ask Santa for the green machine. A rookie mistake. We arrived at Santa's village, conveniently located on the sixth floor near the ladies' lounge, to find a long, snaking line of people waiting to see good old Sandy. Perfect. This bought me some time to form an escape plan. I could fake a stomach ache, but my grandmother wouldn't buy it. I could hop on one leg and claim a need for the restroom, but then we just have to get back online and wait all over again. Then it hit me. My cousin was my ticket out of this mess. A few weeks earlier, Tommy and I had watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom after our family's Sunday dinner. We sat cross-legged together in front of the TV and watched as flying squirrels moved in slow motion across the screen. I was enraptured but my cousin was terrified. He screamed at the sight of them with their flappy skin and their taut tails and insisted that we shut off the TV. His fear, I realized, was my ace in the hole because in Santa's village, there were toy airplanes zooming on invisible wires around the perimeter of Santa's garland bedecked chair, but from a distance, they could be anything really, flying squirrels even. This was my one shot and I had to take it. I surreptitiously leaned down and whispered in his ear, look, Tommy, I said, look over there. My cousin slurped anxiously on his candy cane, his eyes searching the department store horizon. See what Santa has? Santa has flying squirrels up there. I think he keeps them as pets. Mission accomplished. Tommy shrieked until my grandmother had no choice but to leave the line. It had taken us a full hour to find parking on busy Brooklyn streets, and she was none too happy about having to leave without checking a Santa visit off her list. She asked Tommy why he was so distraught, but he just kept screaming until Santa's village was no longer in view from the sight line of the descending escalator. Then she turned her attention to me, playing the innocent I shrugged my shoulders. Maybe he shouldn't have eaten that candy cane. I said, my mom says he gets hyperactive when he eats too much sugar. Her eyes told me that she knew I'd been guilty of something in this Christmas passion play. She couldn't discern what, but her instinct was correct. She offered me the silent treatment for five more escalator flights until we arrived at Abraham and Strauss's grand main floor. As Brooklynites scurried by with their shopping bags, a burning ball of shame grew in my center, telling me that the sin of cruelly tricking my little cousin was far worse than facing my fear. I was unequivocally guilty. I had once again been acutely, horribly naughty. There'd be nothing under the tree for me this year. Clearly, I had taken things too far. But a few weeks later, on a snowy Christmas morning, my stocking was miraculously full and there were stacks of presents under the tree for me with my name written in perfect cursive on the gift tags. 
Santa had even spelled my name correctly, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N, not Kathleen with a C or Catherine, as everyone else, including my teachers, so often had. Santa knew me. He really, really knew me, flaws and all. And he still put me on the nice list. Maybe Sandy wasn't such a bad guy after all. And maybe I wasn't such a bad girl either. Maybe there was hope for me yet and for all of us. Thanks. What a lovely ending, Kathleen. Thank you so much for your naughty and nice story. And as we can all testify, grandmas always know. And if you want to see Kathleen tell that story, it's on our YouTube channel, along with all our previous Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Next up, with a very different Christmas story, it's another first-timer, Mary Johnson, who joined us from her home in Donegal. It was the early 70s, and I had planned to come home to Donegal to spend Christmas with my father, who lived on his own. I was a little nervous because I was going to be travelling with my two-year-old daughter for company. I packed two small suitcases before leaving Manchester. One had a few presents she could open on Christmas morning. The other had a few clothes for both of us to wear while we were there. Then off we set for Manchester. We settled on the train journey to Haitian, where we were going to catch the ferry to Belfast. In those days, only a few people booked a cabin on the ferry. I wasn't one of those few, so I made a bed for my daughter on a blanket that I brought with me. I snuggled down on the seat beside her and we slept through most of the five to six hour journey to Belfast. Luckily, I wasn't seasick on this occasion. Arriving in Belfast, my problems began. In those days, normally, people would get off the ferry and grab a taxi to take them to the train station. From there, they would catch the train to their destination. Mine, of course, was Derry. My father would hopefully meet us there. But things didn't work out quite as planned. On getting off the ferry, we queued in the dark, drizzly morning for a taxi, which was meant to take us to the station. We waited for some time, but nothing was happening. Then suddenly I heard a loud bang in the distance, which disturbed me. I picked up my toddler and held her close. Then a man came up to us and announced, there is some trouble and there's going to be no taxis running this morning. You'll have to travel by bus to the train station. Now, I had a toddler and two suitcases. I managed to struggle on the bus nervously. I found a seat and settled my two-year-old down. I just struggled to put the two cases up on the rack. Then I was relieved to sit down beside her. It was only a short journey to the train station, but I had to unload and reload the cases again before the train took off for Derry. We were very tired and I dozed off. Every now and again, her little voice would pipe up, going to see Grandad, going to see Grandad. She never complained. Luckily, she was a sweet, patient little child. Never complained. Still doesn't. At the waterside station, I took my cases off the rack and hurried out. My father was there with a neighbour who owned a car. He gave us a warm welcome, a hug, and made a fuss of my little girl. My father had a pocket full of sweets for her, as was his custom. They put the cases in the boot of the car and set off for Donegal. 
When we arrived home in Donegal, I put my cases in the bedroom. I opened one and took out a few necessary things, night clothes for both of us and some things to wear the following day. I left the other case unopened. It contained a few Christmas presents for my little girl. I didn't want to open it while she was there. I would open it later when she was asleep. The following day was Christmas Eve. But Catherine was far more interested in following the hens and ducks around and watching my father milk the cows when she was about Santa. That evening, a few of the neighbours came in to welcome us home. They had a few drinks while I got my little one ready for bed. When she was asleep, I decided to open the other suitcase. I was thinking I would wrap the doll and the other few, few little things that I had in the case and put them under the tree that I had decorated earlier. I was getting quite excited. I imagined her opening the presents in the morning. I sat back to take a deep breath after a long, busy day. Finally, I pressed a button on the other case. And the lid sprang up. I stood back in disbelief. This is not my case. It didn't have any of our clothes in it or any of the other little presents. What I saw shocked me. I couldn't believe my eyes. I stood for a few minutes staring at it. I dug about to expose the, expose the contents. The first thing I saw was a bottle of whiskey. The second was another bottle of whiskey, then a bottle of brandy and one of gin. I dug a bit deeper to uncover three cartons of player cigarettes and a pair of men's pyjamas. There was nothing else in the case. Whose case was this? It certainly wasn't mine. I wanted to cry. I left the case open and went to the kitchen where my father's friends were having a drink and singing. There's a glen and old Jacob. There's a cottage in the glen. Where dwells a fair young maiden who inspired the hearts of men. I was nearly in tears and told them the story of my strange suitcase with so much alcohol. They stopped singing when they saw my face and heard my story. Ach, why don't we open one of them bottles? They looked at the half-empty bottle that they'd been drinking from. Sure, this is nearly empty. No, no, I said, you can't. It belongs to poor, some poor devil who'd be looking for his suitcase. He may not have missed it yet. Well, he'll have a long journey up here to Malin, they laughed. I went back to the room, leaving them mourning the passing of poor Noreen Vaughan. I shut the suitcase quickly. Luckily, my father had some presents for my little girl. One was a mouth organ. Another neighbour also bought a present for her. I was very thankful and put them under the tree. Then a very kind neighbour sent up a goose. I should have been grateful, but I had to pluck the damn thing. And that was not how I expected to spend Christmas Eve. In the morning, she walked up very early playing the mouth organ, but she soon got tired of that and woke her poor granddad, who probably had a bit of a hangover to take her out to see the wee baby car that she'd seen in the buyer the previous day. But we did enjoy the Christmas dinner and I tried to put a brave face on the story of my missing case. 
following week, many times I was begged to open one of them damn bottles, but I stuck to my guns and refused to open it. Of course, we didn't have a telephone in those days, neither did any of the neighbours. So I couldn't inquire as to who the case belonged to. My only option was the local post office, which of course was shut over Christmas. But when it opened, the kind postmistress went all out of her way to trace the, trace the case. I was relieved and st I still don't know how she did it in those days before the internet, etc. It turned out that the owner was a man from Belfast, home for Christmas. Now I imagine this poor man spending Christmas sitting with a case full of women's clothes and a child's toys instead of his good whiskey and brandy. He probably imagined someone else enjoying it. Arrangements would have to be made to get it back to him. A week later, on our way back to Manchester, due to the quick thinking of this postmistress, I was able to leave the case with the whiskey intact in a pub in Donegal Square. And here I picked up my own suitcase still intact in that same pub. In fact, the suitcases were identical. Same color, same style, which was probably where the mix-up occurred, except that mine had no bottles in it. I would like to have met this man and thanked him for keeping my suitcase safe. But as I was rushing to board the ferry, there was no opportunity for that. I expect that he was grateful to me for refusing to open his whiskey. So the story had a happy ending. After all, when we got back to Manchester, my little girl was delighted to find the toys that she was meant to have on Christmas morning. But that was the last Christmas I would travel on that long journey with my little child. Many years later, we moved back to Donegal and I'm now able to spend every Christmas with that little girl and her own children. Oh, Mary, that is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, lovely. I am. I'm so filled with admiration for your fortitude to withhold the various pressures on people to crack open one of those bottles of whiskey for themselves. Oh, indeed, Podrick. I think you might have been tempted to get stuck in yourself. And as Podrick said, Mary, such a beautiful story and how lovely for you to have Catherine there. And Catherine also told a story at 10 by 9 recently and will be appearing soon on the podcast. But mum got there first. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate it. Now, if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10 by 9com That is story at 10 by 9com Now, here's our third story, and it's from Fergal McGuckin, and is one minor but well-used little swear word. I'm a secondary school teacher by trade, which is uh, not for the faint-hearted, uh, admittedly. Uh, I've taught in some interesting, varied and challenging environments over the years. Uh, that was certainly true of the not-so-salubrious academic institution where I had the dubious pleasure of completing my first student teaching placement. I'll not sully the reputation of this school by naming it because it is by all accounts a, a fine establishment these days. However, back in the day, back before everyone went soft, back when assisted technologies consisted of a Casio calculator, when there were blackboards instead of whiteboards, 
when there were smoke-filled staff rooms imbued with a gallows humour that was darker than a pint of stout, back when everyone was desperately trying to keep things uh, normal in the one place where kids could feel safe from the sporadic chaos of pre-peace process inner city Belfast. And back when this particular seat of learning had a reputation for being as tough as teak among the local teaching fraternity. My placement was to run from the beginning of October right up to Christmas. I remember my first day quite vividly. It was a crisp, sunny morning which accentuated the early burst of autumnal coloration in the tree-lined street. Or ordinarily, I could have fully appreciated the beauty of such a morning had it not been for my preoccupation with what fate would await me at the poison chalice of teaching placements, as one of my peers had described it. I went more in fear and trepidation than, in, than with any sense of eager anticipation. First appearances probably didn't help, to be fair. It was a traditional early 60s red brick school building, built in, the in a quadrant around a courtyard with an old Victorian house sitting like a surreal anomaly in the middle. This is where the principal's office and administrative hub were, where the staff room was upstairs. It was a lovely building, had it not been almost entirely obscured by the austere school buildings which encased it. Christ, I thought, this place is more reminiscent of a state penitentiary than a school. As it turned out, I had a gentle enough introduction to the school which gave me time to meet my new colleagues and pick up one or two insightful observations about the changing dynamic within the school at that time. I realised a new principal had been appointed, headhunted apparently, and that he was determined to reverse the school's flagging fortunes and waning reputation, come hell or high water. He was a very determined individual with boundless energy and enthusiasm, which was precisely the problem for some of the old hands in the staff room. He was changing things and unsettling them from their well-worn routines. He was going to have his work cut out to transform this lot, I thought. Although my sympathies were with them in the main, they were a fantastic bunch to work with, protective, loyal, witty, and often searingly funny. They were hardworking and very professional too, in a distinctly old school type of way. However, for the new principal, the school was in a rut. It was stagnating. He wanted more dynamism, more innovation, more progress, more dedication, more everything. Some of the new initiatives went down well, like enforcing proper school uniform. It was when he started meddling with teachers' timetables or the well-settled curriculum that colours became ruffled. One of the things that the new principal would insist upon was the restoration of a long-lapsed school tradition, the Christmas show, complete with carol singing and the nativity play. Not only had the nativity not been performed in many a year, even the school choir was virtually defunct by this point. The assembly hall had been used for very little outside of PE activities for quite some time. It had a proper stage and everything, but it had become a bit of a dumping ground for assorted PE equipment, broken desks, and other school detritus. This was going to be a monumental task to resuscitate this particular tradition. The majority of the staff remained resolutely cynical. They knew what they were up against. The boys won't have it, they said. It'll be a disaster. He hasn't got a Scooby-Doo. One fundamental issue was raised. Who'd play the part of Mary? One acerbic suggestion was to have Big Aidan from year 12 play Mary. 
all six foot three of them and 20 stones of them. I can see it from both viewpoints. I understood the principal's quest to raise standards and expectations. However, I had also gained an insight into what the teachers were up against. Dealing with poor behavior was routine and endemic. And no matter how hard they tried, educational outcomes remained resolutely poor and expectations were infused with a dose of realism. Some of these boys were coming from the most socially deprived areas of Belfast and in an era when the Troubles was still maintaining its insidious grip on Northern Ireland society. As if to remind me of what the staff were up against, there was an episode in the staff room the week before the planned Christmas show which highlighted the realities. A teacher of French, let's call him Peter, entered the staff room, sat down at a desk and proceeded to theatrically bump his head off the desk repeatedly, Basil Faulty style. What's wrong now? A colleague wearily inquired. Peter replied, I give up. I've seen and heard it all now. I was doing the French orals with the year 12s. We Tommy Devane comes in and I remind him about all the protocols and everything before I hit the record button. He reassures me that he was revising all the questions at the weekend and is feeling very confident. Good man, I said. So we start the oral and he flies through all the introductory stuff. Je m'appelle Tommy, blah, blah, blah. Then I ask him, en français, what are your favorite hobbies and pastimes? He looks at me blankly, totally bereft. I'm out of my chair, pretending to head a football, disco dancing, like a fuck agent. It was like a game of fucking Pictionary. Suddenly, he gives me the thumbs up. Like he's just had that light bulb moment. Then he speaks. He proceeded to give the entire answer in English, but with a French accent. I shit you not. It was like a bloody episode of Hello Hello for Christ's sakes. Ooh, I like to play the football and then we go dancing with my friends. This went on for the rest of the mock and Tommy looked exceedingly pleased with himself at the end. I give up. I just give up. Although hilarious, this incident encapsulated what these guys were up against in many ways. And so did the Christmas nativity itself. Everything had gone surprisingly smoothly in the run-up to the big evening. The choir had been reconstituted and had, apparently, nailed a full repertoire of carols and hymns. The caretakers had worked overtime to clear the clutter from the stage. The art and drama departments had performed wonders with the stage set and in preparing the budding thespians for the nativity. They'd even managed to recruit a Mary. Mercifully, not a six foot three one. The local MP had been invited, as had the deputy mayor and even the bishop. This would be the perfect showcase for the school's burgeoning renaissance. Everyone was seated. The packed hall was spruced up and shining there was a frisson of anticipation and excitement in the air. Suddenly, there was a rush of activity backstage. Then, the drama teacher, looking rather flushed and concerned, made her way towards the principal, beckoning him from his seat. I wondered what was up. It was obvious that something was wrong. It was then I could hear a ripple of laughter coming from some of my colleagues seated in the rows in front of me. What's going on? I inquired. The technology teacher in front of me replied, apparently someone's stolen the baby Jesus from the crib in the nativity scene. 
And they've even left a ransom note. The ransom note read, leave three Kit Kats under the school Christmas tree or the kid gets it. Well, you know what they say, Rome wasn't built in a day or even in a school term, it would seem. Happy Christmas. Oh, Fargo, that is just great. Um, I'm not going to ask you what school it is, but I actually think I know one of those boys because I had a housemate years ago who told me that him and his friends stole the baby Jesus. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Well, now, I'm sure that well, there that are... that just proves it's true. It just proves it's true. I'm sure there are a variety of schools around Belfast where that was done. What they did, though, mm. he said that one of the boys in his gang was a little bit, um, you know, more gung-ho than the rest of them. And he... <laughs> He broke off one of the fingers and sent it in an envelope to the headmaster. Maybe that wasn't your school. <laughs> well, I don't recall that bit, but yeah, that, that would be par for the course, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't well, be surprised. You were, you were phenomenally discreet to not give the school away because we're sure it is a magnificent establishment of learning it is, and, it is. and French culture. Mm, Podrick, what sort of people do you hang out with? Thanks so much, Virgil, for that gem. And what a wonderful insight into the behind-the-scenes world of the teacher. Now, if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. And that is pretty much it for this podcast for now. I'm going to ask a small favour. If you enjoy the podcast... Could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating? And if you could, maybe leave a short review. We would be so grateful. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So, it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon during the holidays, so keep an eye out for that. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs>